Hey Legacy Church. Uh, my name is Amanda Simmons, and I'm excited to get to talk to you a little bit about kind of some of the things the Lord's been doing and revealing in my heart and challenging me with in this season. Um, I think if there was one thing that I think the Lord has challenged me to do more, and I've had wonderful opportunity to do more, is is to pray. Um, and I feel like you know, I, so I'm a medical speech pathologist. I work at a skilled nursing facility, um, and then at a local hospital and, um, just really have a love for the geriatric population. I feel like that's one group that I've been praying for in particular and would encourage you, uh, if you have a moment to just to think about them as we think about, um, one, this whole hard season that we've had of isolation, but then also moving into a season where we're going to be out and about and moving around a little bit more. And this is a population that maybe is more at risk, um, in this current pandemic. And so, um, just some things to be aware of, you know, I think it's really important for us to just be mindful and to demonstrate care for others. We have a spectrum of ways that we're thinking about getting back into normal life. Um, but just to be aware of individuals around you and to seek to, to serve them, whatever that might look like. That might mean stepping back a couple extra feet. That may mean wearing a mask. Um, and I know everyone has their own thoughts and feelings, but I would just encourage you, um, especially people near and dear to you, um, you know, think about, about their, particular struggles or concerns and fears that they might be walking through and how we can serve them. Um, and if that means, you know, that I have to do a little bit more something that maybe I don't think is necessary, but it puts them at ease or, um, it's of benefit to them, then, you know, the Lord's really been working on my heart about like, maybe I should do that. Um, if that serves them, I think that honors the Lord. And so, um, I'm going to take, a, take an opportunity real quick to pray for you, to pray for our city, um, and to pray for our geriatric population in this area that I absolutely love to death. So, Lord, thanks for today. Uh, God, I just thank you for opportunity to draw near to you, Lord, and to think on um, our role as, as a Christian, as a brother, as a sister in Christ, um, towards one another, Lord, this is such a, a hard charged, um, politicized time. And, um, Lord, I pray that you would just help us or challenge us. I pray that you would humble us Lord, that we would seek to serve one another, God, um, whatever that might look like, Lord, and that we would be, um, sensitive and tender and compassionate, um, to those that maybe are immunocompromised or, um, maybe just walking through trouble and fear, um, with the unknowns of everything that is right now. So Lord, I pray that you would just give us, um, compassionate hearts to love one another, Lord, to put aside our, um, preferences in, in, uh, an extension of love to, to those around us. And so God, I do just thank you for, um, the provision of prayer that we have, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to grow our hearts and minds and help us to practice praying, Lord, that we might do this daily. Um, Lord, and I just pray over our church and our city. God, we pray for gospel revival. 
Lord, I pray that um, Luke's word today would reach far and wide, that people would hear the gospel in a new way, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just fall upon your people, Lord, and upon the city, Lord, that people would come to know you that have never seen and understood or or, um, or known you before, Lord. Um, so I just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love, God, and that your arms are not short and your heart is not small, God, quite the opposite. And so we thank you for your son, for Jesus Christ, for his life, death, resurrection, and new life that we live in today. So we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, Legacy. All right. Thank you, Amanda, for your leadership um, and helping us think through uh, the elderly population, how we could care for them how we can be thoughtful for them, how we can pray for them. Um, that's that's going to be helpful for us as we go through this passage today, because once again, uh, this is going to be an important sermon, but the Bible's going to lead us well in this today. This, like the last several passages, is falling where I, what I'd call a providential place, meaning that it seems like God is thoughtfully timing where these passages would land in such a way that it gives him the most glory and helps you and me as we try to serve this city and love each other. So if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 2. We're going to finish that chapter out as we've been going through this series on Philippians. We're going to start in verse 19 of chapter 2, and we're going to finish it out. This is what the word of the Lord is for us today. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, before we jump in and let this examine us, I want you to consider somebody in this wide world that you have discord with. I want you to picture their face in your mind. I don't want you to worry about whose fault it is or what that dirty dog did to you. But I just want you to think about somebody that there's disunity regarding you and them. I think it's going to help us as we roll through this passage. Because what we're going to find is that in every situation where there is discord and disunity, somewhere in that moment, somewhere in that situation is somebody saying, me first. Me before you. Me before all of you. That's going to be there every single time. It's me before you that is beating in the heart of an abusive husband. Me before you is why people murder each other. It's why we have adultery. The last time your 
identity was hacked. There was some person in a hoodie somewhere on, on a laptop thinking in their mind, me before them. In fact, probably every crime ever committed has me before you somewhere in the equation. And it doesn't even have to be a crime. I've never seen, in over 20 years of being a pastor, I've never seen me first, you last work out well in any situation. In fact, I'd say every single marital fracture I have ever seen has one of the two spouses saying, I am more important than this person. Somebody's not putting the gun down. <laughs> Somebody is saying that their narrative is the most true and the most valued. Someone is saying that their needs are more needy. Someone is saying that they're more valuable in some way, shape, or form. Why do we get like this? How do we get like this? We actually inherited it. We come to this world with an operating system already installed, and this is encoded in us. You don't have to look very far into the Bible before you see that Adam and Eve, in the fall in the garden, they had themselves as primary in their minds. They were the center of their universe. It was them first. And then Cain, their, their son, he had the same thing coursing through his blood as he destroys his brother. Me first. That's what's important. Friends, listen. This has been true in the Bible from that moment all the way up to today because it's true in history. Everybody who has ever existed is born with a me-first mentality. I want you to consider the news that's been happening the last few days. I mean, we, as, as I'm addressing you right now, there are cities that are on fire. There are cars that are smoldering. Businesses have been bashed in and looted. Homes have been burned down. Lives have been lost. People are angry. There's been crimes committed. Regardless of what your opinions are on George Floyd or the long list of, of people who have died, you have to admit that racial trauma is as alive now as it has ever been. Racial tension did not go away because a pandemic came. It's ever-present. We have race problems today, even in Knoxville. Why, though? Have you ever asked yourself, why are we still struggling with this? Why is there still discord between brother and brother? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's the same problem Cain had. I'm more important. That's really what racism is, by the way. And we've talked about this at length in other sermons. The guts inside of a racist heart is the thought that I am more valuable. Me before you. I am first. You are last. Listen, Jesus is really our only hope. God, the gospel is our only hope at defeating this. We cannot educate our way out of racism. We would have already done it, right? You can't throw enough tax dollars at racism to beat racism either. And it's not going to happen. We're not going to beat racism if we elect the right officials. That's not going to happen. We're not going to beat racism if we pull the right social strategies out of the best colleges of the land. Listen, you can pack as many celebrities in a podcast as you possibly can, or a golf tournament, or a music video. That's not going to raise enough money to beat racism. How do we do it? How do we do it? Last night, Instagram, on Instagram, Nike put out a post, and it said this, For once, don't do it. Don't pretend there's not a problem in America. Don't turn your back on racism. Don't accept innocent lives being taken from us. Don't make any more excuses. Don't think this doesn't affect you. Don't sit back and be silent. 
Don't think you can't be part of the change. Let's all be a part of the change. Listen, I don't hate that post at all, really, but I'd have to ask Nike how. Okay, how do we change? How, I don't think we can Instagram our way out of racism as well. I don't think just bringing awareness to racism is going to beat racism. The only way we are going to beat a me before you syndrome that we are born with is with the gospel changing our heart, taking a broken heart that can't even feel out and putting a heart of flesh in that can feel, that can respond to what we do and respond to what God has done for us. You see, me before you, as we're looking at, is very natural to us. It's actually where God finds us with his gospel. So I know society likes to, to brandish this idea that unity is possible without the church and without God or any idea of God, without the gospel, without, we don't need that. We can be unified if we just stand together. That doesn't make any sense. It has a limit to it. It's, it's a cheap unity whenever it runs out of steam. At some point, there will be too much sacrifice being asked of somebody, and that's where that unity breaks, right? So you will see these brief unified moments where mankind stands together, but at some point, a sacrifice that is too deep is being asked, and somebody steps away and says, yeah, but what about me? <laughs> what about me? And that's because we can't escape this me-first mentality. That's just how God finds us, unified, but with limits. Others thoughtful, but with a cap on it, with a limit to it. But Jesus changes this. The gospel is the story of how Christ changes this. One is that he removes the hostility and the disunity that God has with us, right? So the gospel changes us. But then the gospel sustains us as well by empowering you and me to sacrifice our lives, to put down our best self-interests for the interests of those around us. That's what Jesus does. He takes the message that is stamped on our souls. It says, me first, and he alters it to where it now becomes you first, me last. And that's something that only the gospel can do. That's the story of how God has done that for you and for me. It's only then that we can defeat something like racism. It's only then that we can attend to the interest of others at the cost of our own interests. Let me explain how Paul is approaching that in our passage today, because the passage we're dealing with today is not a, a frequently taught one. What's happening is, is he's locked down in house arrest. He's socially distant from all of his loved ones, his friends, and one of these friends is the Church of Philippi. They love him, they miss him, so they send a gift of provision to Paul, not just in money, but in Epaphroditus, one of them, right? Problem is, is this guy gets super duper 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 sick on the way, and now he's just an emotional burden to everybody, right? <laughs> That's just the nice way of saying it. Now, one thing that we know that Philippi wants is they want Paul to send Timothy. They already know Timothy, they love Timothy, and apparently they have some problems, some disunity that they need help with, and they think that Timothy can be some help. So what Paul is saying here is, look, I can't wait to send Timothy to be helpful. In fact, I can't wait to come myself but be assured, I'm sending this guy Epaphroditus back now, because right? <laughs> everybody's burdened. He's burdened because he found out that you guys were burdened for him, and now it's just a big burden on me. So everyone has sorrow upon sorrow. We're going to send him back. So that's what they do. And they send him back with a letter, which happens to be this letter that we're reading today, Philippians. That's where we get Philippians from, right? And he says this in the final thought on this chapter. He says, honor this guy. Honor this guy. 
this fellow soldier, this messenger, for he nearly died for your sake and he nearly died for my sake. He nearly died for the work of God. And I think this is where this passage is going to touch us today. Epaphroditus and Timothy are two guys that show what it looks like to live a you-before-me life. A you-before-me life. Because they're going to mirror Paul and they're going to mirror Christ in their life. Friends, listen, I'm glad for this rarely looked at piece of scripture because this is so much easier than it is done. It's easier to read than it is to actually do. For instance, as society begins to reopen to allow more traffic, this growing split between team freedom and team lockdown, it's just getting louder, right? It's pretty much in all caps, if we could just be honest. If we ever needed an example of what it means to put others first, it is going to be today. Because we live in a me-first society that desperately needs to see a you-first church. Not just saying the gospel, but extending and living it out. It's what everybody needs. This church is really the only hope this world has in seeing what the display of you-first living looks like. You see, COVID-19 did not make us all self-interested. We were already self-interested. It just kind of brought it out so we could see it in real time. When we all saw the video of two women going MMA in some store over an eight-pack of toilet paper or men that were buying all the sanitizer in the world and then selling it on eBay for five times the price, all you were seeing in that moment is just the uh, manifestation of, I am more important than you. Me before you. Me first, you last. That's all we were seeing. Now that kind of shocked me when I saw it, and then it didn't shock me. What does shock me is when Christians, Christians, Christians mock and judge and shame each other for their response to the pandemic. Although we're not throwing physical punches or throwing verbal ones, and that's destroying unity. It's breaking it in half. Let me ask you how you're doing with this personally how you're doing with this. Whenever you encounter people or see someone that's convicted differently in the areas of like a vaccine or a mask, how do you think about them? How do you speak about them? How do you speak to them? How do you post about them? What do you post hoping that they see it? Are there limits to your unity? Meaning you're unified, but really just with people that agree with you? Is there limits to that? You see, this is what Philippi seems to be struggling with a little bit, this me-before-you personality, which is why Paul is taking the time to even introduce these characters of Epaphroditus and Timothy. Because they're pointing to Christ as they empty themselves of all of their self-interest. They're humble men. They are partners in the gospel with one mind and one heart. They're standing together, striving together, moving forward for the sake of others at their own cost. Why are they doing that? Because the gospel has changed them. Changed them. So now they're living a gospel-shaped life. Let me just remind you, in the very same breath of this passage, if we were to go back one breath, Paul says this in Philippians 2.3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, this is, this is how he introduces these men. In Epaphroditus, what's interesting about him in this passage is he's ultimately sad, 
because others know he's sick, not because he's sick. That's crazy to me. When I get really, really super duper sick, I, am, I don't really care if you're burdened for me. I, I care because I don't feel good. In fact, I might be burdened if you're not taking care of me the way I want to be taken care of. But this guy is mostly burdened and mostly saddened because others are bothered by that, because others are hurting for him. Timothy, he also stood out. Paul says there is no one like him. No one like him. He's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare, Paul says. Not fake concerned, not kind of concerned. This is a guy that's losing sleep over it. He's like a caged animal. He's wanting Paul to send him so he can be a part of the growing process of this church. You see, anytime Paul couldn't go and visit a church, he would send Timothy. Timothy was his guy. He was his stand-in. He, he didn't just send Timothy to this church. He sent him to Corinth and Thessalonica at the same time. Why? Because this is a guy that was concerned for others more than he was concerned for himself. You see, Paul wanted healthy churches. Healthy churches, which meant a church full of people seeking the interest of others over themselves at their own cost. That is a deep humility that builds a deep unity. That's what he's interested in. Me too. As, as a church leadership team, our goal has not been to open up services as fast as possible. That's a dumb goal. Our goal has been to maintain this rugged devotion to the gospel, and while everybody is spatially in different places and socially distant, to keep unity together, to grow together and grow forward in unity. That has been one of our goals. But this requires a you-before-me posture, right? You can't have a healthy church that's self-consumed. You can't. The Bible speaks to this a bunch. Psalm 133, this is what the psalmist says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Romans 12, another great passage, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means be obnoxiously competitive when it comes to showing other people honor. That's what builds unity. A church full of people trying to increase their fellow man, trying to increase the people around them at their own cost, that's going to grow a gospel-shaped community. But a people that try to shrink everybody else so they can enlarge themselves, that's going to create division. That's going to create disunity. I mean, let's just get practical for a moment. Listen, I know some of you are sick and tired of masks, exhausted over the idea of wearing a mask, especially to a church service where you're having to sit six to ten feet apart from other people. You're upset about that. I get it. I truly get it. You see these precautions as a needless overreach, right? You don't understand that what's obvious to you is not obvious to everybody else. You don't know what the big deal is. And because of that, you refuse to wear a mask, right? Because of that, you refuse to wear a mask in settings where other people will feel unsafe because of it. Because it's a compression of your rights. It's a restriction of your freedoms. And you've probably taken some liberty to make fun of the people that are wearing masks. Friends, listen, let me ask you a question. Even if you are right, even if you are right, are you not led in such moments, such passages like this, such a gospel like this, such a Jesus like this, are you not led to lay down your interests, to lay down your freedoms out of an eager abundance of love? For the people around you that have a genuine fear and a genuine anxiety and a genuine concern. Are we not led to do this? 
I get it, it's your freedom. It's your freedom. But isn't laying down our freedoms what makes a sacrifice sacrificial? <laughs> I mean, if it didn't cost you anything, then it's not a sacrifice. If you didn't have to decrease to serve somebody other's self-interest, then it wasn't a sacrifice. Because here's the truth. Some people aren't coming back to gatherings whenever they start to open. By our surveys, one-third of legacy is not returning whenever we start opening up. They're genuinely concerned for their health. That's not made up. This is not hypothetical. We have people that firmly fit within that category that's a danger to them, right? For whatever reason, they fit in that place where the virus is more than a joke. You might be tempted to mock them. You might be tempted to shame them. Don't do that. Don't do that. It breaks the unity that we can't afford to lose right now, and it's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. It tells the world also that the gospel changes a lot of things about us, but we can still be number one. And unity can just be unity until it hurts. Friends, listen, even if you're 100% right about the masks, in the mask wearers are 100% wrong about it. Even if their anxieties in your mind are needless and 100% silly in your eyes, the Jesus-shaped move is still to regard their interests and their comfort over your own. This is what Paul was trying to tell the church of Rome. If you were to, on your own time, look at the 14th chapter of Rome, and you'll see Paul kind of work through this law, logic, but it's dealing with food. And he says, guys, when it comes to food, stop arguing and quarreling and having weird opinions about food. Food? Listen, if you want to eat whatever you want to eat to the glory of God and you're convicted to do so, then do it. If you're just a vegetable guy and you want to eat vegetables to the glory of God and that's your conviction, then do it. But don't judge each other. Don't be throwing stumbling blocks in front of each other. Here's the truth. I'm not big on masks. I'm not, personally. There it is. I said it. Okay? I'm not big on masks. I've got my own ideas, as brilliant as I'm sure they are, on what would be most valuable and most effective. I have opinions, but I'm not going to flip a breaker every time someone is asking me to put a mask on. I'm not going to do it. My freedom's not being stolen. I'm eager to lay it down. Eager to lay it down for my neighbor. By the way, this judgment, this criticism, it flows both ways too. Unity can be just as broken by team precaution as it can by team freedom. Okay? It's just as easy for us to mock and shame people who are not wearing masks. Call them science deniers. Call them um, conspiracy theorists. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can do to break unity on both sides. Because the me first syndrome, it finds us all. It finds us all. You see, Paul is painting a picture for us here of what unity in the middle of differences looks like when the gospel encounters it. Right? This is the only hope we have for our little petty pandemic wars and for something as big as racism. It's the only answer we have. Looking out for the other person and their interests even more than our own. You see, Paul says this a little earlier in this very same letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There it is, standing. 
striving yet side by side with one heart, one mind, one soul, one direction, one mission, one set of values, one. But this is going to require a you first, me last mentality or it's not going to happen. And this is hard, isn't it? This is hard. I mean, if we just stay in the same example we're using with our little pandemic wars, it's going to be exhausting to those of us who are just sick of wearing masks in Zooming, in social distancing. It's going to be exhausting to do it for the sake of others. But here, it's going to be inconvenient to not drink a beer whenever there are people around you that have substance problems. It's going to be inconvenient to do anything that requires us to lay down a freedom in order to love someone else more than we love ourselves. It's hard work. It's hard work. And gosh, I wish I was always living like this, right? I, I wish I was always living a you-first life. But I don't. Here's the truth. Timothy and Epaphroditus, as impressive as they are, they're just people like the rest of us. They had good days and bad days. They're, they weren't a thousand percent humble and a thousand percent self-sacrificing. And so they leave us kind of looking for somebody who is, don't they? I mean, this passage leaves me looking over their shoulders a little bit to see if there really is somebody who is 1,000% humble and 1,000% self-sacrificing. And I find him in Christ. And to shoplift Paul's words as he's describing Timothy, there is no one like him. There's no one like this Christ. He was a sacrifice for me when I demanded my own way, when I put myself first. Just like our original parents, he found us adoring ourselves. <laughs> you got to know about the gospel is a story not of God coming to save nice and dignified people from a villain, but to save villains from a death that they rightfully deserved. He found us sacrificing, but only a little bit, only till it hurt. He found us unified as a people, but only unified with people that agree with us, which when you think about it is a very fake unity. He changed me from this me first mentality to a you first mentality. Nothing had ever been able to do that before, only the power of God's work in me. You see, Epaphroditus, he nearly died carrying a message to Paul. But Jesus did die carrying a message of the gospel to our needy souls. And here's the best part of this gospel. Here's the best part of this, is the gospel is perfect for the me first crowd, for you and me. It's perfect for us that came out of the womb with this deep encoding. You might have strife around you, that's for sure. You might have quarrels and opinions, to use Paul's words, but God no longer has strife or quarrels with those whom he has loved and given his spirit to. He doesn't. And this is also true about the gospel. The gospel is not me telling you how, how to go out and be a better, more behaved person. It's not. You're free to hit delete on all of these admonitions that I've given you today. And God will not hit delete on his approval of you. We're free to be imperfect works in progress. Free. And this brings a freedom to live differently for me. I'm not telling you to be humble so that you can be more well-behaved. I'm saying that you're free to be humble because there's really no value in being right and glorious anymore. There's a deep freedom in being last, in being unheard, and being not listened to. I'm not telling you to attend to others so that God will find you pleasurable. I'm saying God has found you pleasurable because of what Jesus has done, so now you are free to attend to the needs of others over your own. 
I'm not telling you to abandon self-preservation because it makes you look good and more well-behaved. I'm telling you that you are free to abandon looking out for number one because God is looking out for you. You're free to do that. You're free to abandon that. Friends, listen, this gospel that I'm describing, this is how you beat racism. This is how we beat racism. This is how we defeat rioting and looting. It's how we beat it. It's how we beat all these social media drive-bys that we're so fascinated with. It's how we, how we fix selfish marriages. It's how you defeat disunity, even in the church. You see, humility comes to you and me when we abandon being the center of our universe. Humility begins by saying, I don't see everything, and I know I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers, right? I can learn from you, even though we're different, even though I might not agree with everything that you're saying. Humility sees everything as complicated and nuanced and refuses to use extreme statements that are in all caps all the time. When it comes to the pandemic and the race explosions that are happening all around us right now, the truth of what we should all be doing is complicated, isn't it? It's nuanced. It's got layers to it. It can't be crammed into a social media post, even a well-executed one. Regarding the pandemic response, just specifically, you have, you need to know, you have the freedom to be skeptical of, of all of the protocols and precautions, to scrutinize them. You have total freedom to do that without breaking unity. Without breaking unity. Listen, you have the freedom, you can honor authorities, as we see in Romans 13, you can honor authorities and mainstream science and still exercise civil disobedience whenever it is warranted. That's probably a different sermon. But there is a wide in-between, isn't there? Humility is recognizing the fact that we need to be patient and self-sacrificial, attending to the needs of others even over our own. You are free to recognize that the other side of the debate might have a cogent thought or two, that we can learn something from the other camp. We're free to admit that we're wrong on some things. We're free to admit that we have a lot to learn. This is what it looks like to be humble in real time, slow to speak, quick to understand, being patient, being humble, being sacrificial in how we look to the interests and attend to the interests of others over ourselves. This is a sacrifice for everyone. So listen, as we finish, can today be a day where, and I don't know what it looks like for you, what space and time is a treasured space and time where you connect with the Lord? It's in your car or in your backyard. But can, day, can today be a day where you reaffirm that the gospel is good enough that it has freed you from this insatiable need to be number one? Where you have a freedom to be last? Where me before you because of the gospel, has been changed into you before me. Can you find it in your heart today to repent and turn away from being number one in the center of your cosmos, for putting your interests above others? Can you turn from your sin, breaking unity, and finding discord with those around you, also that you could be right, also that you could be heard, also that you could be glorious? I mean, can today be a day where you reaffirm the gospel's truth over you that you have this deep freedom to come in last? Did you have the freedom to put down the gun first? To say, I'm sorry, first? To initiate this reconciliation? I mean, that face I told you to put in your mind when we first started this, can you today pick up the phone or look across the room 
and tell them, listen, I, I'm going to go first. You before me. I'm sorry. We, this unity that's being broken, this is silly. There, there is something that's more valuable than one of us being right. Can that happen? You know, when Christ returns and he redeems his creation, there's not going to be any more racial trauma. No more people killing other people. There's not going to be any more looting. No more protests, really. No more viruses. No more hoarding. No more mockery online. We're going to see each other with new eyes. New eyes. And we won't have the need to be number one in those moments. We're, we're going to have Jesus as our number one. He will be the primary. And his glory will be so splendid and so all-encompassing that it will replace any need of even the, su the sun or the moon. He will be the center of our center <laughs> forever. But until that day, we have the gospel not just to save us, but to sustain us in seasons like this. So listen, today, pray for race relations and the cities that you're seeing on the news and pray for them in this city. Pray for them in Knoxville. Pray for unity in the churches as they begin the reopening process. That's when it's going to get hairy. Wasn't hairy when we shut everything down. It's going to be a little bit hairy as we reopen everything. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be clumsy. Everyone's going to be tempted to throw rocks at the other camp. Right? Pray for unity in the church. Pray for racism in our cities. There's a lot to pray for, is there not? So let me finish by praying for you, praying for this city, praying for our church. Father, we thank you for being good to us and kind and thoughtful to look out for our best interests, even above your own as you walked this earth and gave the deepest sacrifice, not to be like Epaphroditus, but you did what he could not do. And you gave yourself as a perfect man, even though we would be found very, very, very imperfect. Your gospel is so good and it is so deep, and it is so beautiful that we'll never reach the edges of it. So, Father, we just ask that this gospel changes us, that your Holy Spirit changes us from a me-first person to a you-first person, that we can begin to see, not that we have to put others above ourselves, but we're free to do so, because everything that we clamor for has no value to us today. So, Lord, we pray for unity in the church. And Father, we pray for unity in our cities, for the end of racism to come. Lord, that that starts with us. The, the defeating of racism comes with a gospel-changed heart. Lord, that we wouldn't abandon all of the creative things that mankind can do to bring attention to the problem, but Lord, we all know that it's only Christ that can change a racist heart, that it's only Christ that can get rid of this thing that has plagued our world for such a long time. So, Lord, we pray for our churches that are in the cities that are being destroyed right now. We have a lot of churches that are struggling to keep everything under control, that are struggling to pronounce the gospel, that are struggling to keep race tensions under a boil. Father, we pray for our churches there. And we pray that your gospel goes quick and goes deep into the hearts of those who are angry and feel like no one's hearing them, and those who have had their property damaged, and those who have known someone who has lost their lives. Father, that this season, when emotions are so high, that your gospel does so much work. Lord, we love you, and we pray for those who have even listened to this sermon and realize that they are very far from you. Lord, that you would change their heart. Lord, that they even see that in their own life, they've been unable to change 
where it really matters. They've been unable to grow where it truly matters. So, Father, we pray that you would rescue them, not because they are nice, not because they are proper, but, Father, because they are a villain and they need you more than anything, that they're desperate for your mercy and your grace, that today you would change their heart. So we love you, we thank you, and we celebrate your name. Amen. I love you a bunch. Be watchful this next week for announcements on how we will move forward in phase two as a church. But until then, I love you, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Have a great weekend.